0: You can help NRDC safeguard the Earth for future generations. Visit nrdc.org WNYC for more information.
1: Science Friday is supported by Progressive. Now, most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average.
0: Science Friday is supported by Random House, publisher of When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi, a memoir from a doctor-turned-patient about the fragile beauty of our mortal lives. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is available at prh.com slash air.
2: If we're going to design for the future, one scientist says we should look at the critters around us.
3: I mean, these animals are doing things that our machines are still not capable of doing, we're hoping that our robots can actually face the great outdoors. And to do that, they're going to have to become a lot more animal-like.
2: It's Monday, November 27th, and it's also Science Friday. I'm Sci-Fi producer Rasha Aridi. To round out our celebration of the 2023 Ig Nobels, the awards for science that make you laugh and then think, We're re-sharing a conversation with two-time winner, Dr. David Hu. He won once for studying how and why wombats make cube-shaped poo, and again for discovering that almost all mammals empty their bladders in about 21 seconds, give or take a few. Ira talked with him about his book back in 2018.
1: Ever wondered why your dog's back and forth shaking is so effective in getting you soaked? How bugs and birds and lizards, they can run across the water without falling in? Or how cockroaches are so darn good at navigating in the dark? We're all in luck because all of these questions and more are answered in my next guest book, How to Walk on Water and Climb Up Walls, Animal Movement and the Robots of the Future. David, who is the author? He's a mathematician, professor of mechanical engineering and biology at Georgia Tech in Atlanta, and we have an excerpt up there at sciencefriday.com slash walkonwater. Welcome back, David. Hi, Ira. It's great to be back. Nice to have you back. You just wonder about stuff around you, don't you, David?
3: Yeah, the uh, everyday world's a great window into evolutionary history. You know, all the all the animals around us, all the people around us, they do the same functions that you know all animals have done, from small all the way up to large. They yeah. they give us a really good idea of like, um, you know, what it's like to be really small or really
1: big or really hairy. Uh, you've in- investigated something called the the wet dog shake, and that, that's not a dance move. I'm talking about. Tell us about that. <laughs> When I first
3: met my wife, she on our on our very first date, she brought this um, poodle um, that I basically had to had to learn to get to know and appease for the next few years. And um, it was the first time I'd spend time around dogs, and I noticed it was really really good at shaking off water or any stickers I put on it. I mean, it was really really fast, and I'd never seen it before. So I decided to high speed film it, and uh, what I saw in the high speed film just amazed me. I mean, it. I don't know if you've seen a dog shaking of water under high under slow mo, but it's um, they can generate huge amount of forces. They generate basically twelve times Earth's gravity. It's the same force that a you know a Formula F one race car takes when it when it takes around a curve. Huh. It's basically the limits of what the human being can take. There's this guy named Colonel John Stapp, he a uh, scientist who tried to test the limits of human acceleration. He strapped himself to a rocket sled and then slammed on the brakes, and he found out at about ten G's. Ten times Earth's gravity, your body's fine, but your eyeballs start detaching from the retinas. And so, actually, all these animals that are doing this wet dog shake—they're pushing the envelope of what their bodies can take. They're they're closing their eyes shut really tightly, just don't don't get their eyeballs sort of detaching.
1: And it's amazing how much water they actually get rid of, isn't it?
3: Yeah, we we did these experiments. We weighed all sorts of animals before and after they uh, shook off water, and in a single second your average dog can remove 90% of its water. Uh, for a, you know, a 60-pound Labrador retriever, that's about a pound of water, and it removes it all in a second. That's, and that's comparable to what your laundry machines do in about an hour.
1: That's, that is amazing. If you stand, if you've you know stood next to dogs, you understand how much water that is. They're really good at getting the water <laughs> back on you. Yeah. <laughs> now I know one of your first projects uh, you studied. Uh, you studied how water strider bugs, these great bugs, they they can walk on water. You see them on lakes all the time. How they can paddle through the water without having oars on their feet? How do they do that? Yeah, that's right. I mean, imagine if you're going for a crew race, you know, a rowboat
3: race, and someone handed you these uh, long, just chopsticks, and said, "Go row your boat." And that's basically what these water striders do. They row without any blades, just with these long, spindly um, legs. Uh, each of these legs is about the width of a human hair. And uh, but what allows them to work is that they're covered in hair. They're these water striders. They're the hairiest animals on earth. I mean, I've been to some swimming pools. I think I've seen the hairiest things on earth. But um, no, it's these water striders. They've got about ten thousand hairs per uh, square millimeter, and um, it's such a you know such a corrugated surface that water can't actually penetrate it. So when they're standing on water, they're actually standing on a cushion of air that's trapped within their hairs. From beneath, they just look like a pincushion. Mm-hmm. And because they're just floating on air, you can blow them, and they just glide like it, the water's ice.
0: You can help NRDC safeguard the earth for future generations. Visit nrdc.org WNYC for more information. Science Friday is supported by ZBiotics. The team of PhD scientists at ZBiotics are tackling rough mornings after drinking with their new pre-alcohol probiotic. This probiotic breaks down the byproduct of alcohol while you drink and sets you up for a great next day. Check out the cutting-edge technology for yourself at zbiotics.com slash Friday and use the code FRIDAY to get 10% off your first order. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. That's zbiotics.com slash Friday and use the code FRIDAY at checkout for 15% off. Each election season, political memoirs abound, doorstops that sometimes divulge more than intended.
1: No matter how diligently they present themselves in the most electable light, they always reveal themselves, their insecurities, their fears, their ambitions.
0: How to read a politico on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flatow, and we're revisiting a conversation I had in 2018 with two-time Ig Nobel winner David Hu about some of the surprising things animals can do, what those feats tell us about physics, and maybe teach us humans how to do things better ourselves. And we're looking for your questions, anything that tickles your curiosity in your daily life, something that might be solved by creating an experiment. Here's someone who I might be thinking like that. Sean in Cincinnati. Hi, Sean. Welcome to Science Friday. Go ahead. Um, well, this has been bothering me for about 25 years, and I can't understand how it is that a fly can land on a ceiling. Hmm. Well, Dave, what do you think?
3: Well, flies, um, ants, and a lot of insects, they, uh, they have a couple ways to basically walk. You know, on walls or walk on the underside of ceilings, um, and a lot of these ways are would be difficult for us. But there's actually new technologies that are making it possible. So there are actually people that have built devices that are allowing them to climb on glass buildings like geckos and flies. Um, so there's a couple ways that the uh, flies do it. If you zoom in, imagine zooming in down to that little fly leg. Um, th- first, they've got a They've got this little thing called an aerolium. These are small, um, a small balloon that pops up every time the fly puts its foot down. And on this balloon is a really thin layer of fluid. It's kind of like a glue. Um, in fact, if you actually look really closely at your fly, and they've done this for ants, you'll see its footsteps. You'll see a trail. Of little drops of goo that is left behind, Um, it's the surface tension of that goo that allows it to stick. The same force that allows drops to cling to your ceiling or to your car windshield window, that's the same force that supports the fly weight because it's so light. Um, So that's one way that the flies do it. Um, They also have a series of hairs. Um, They're the same hairs that the gecko has. I mean. There's an example of what's called convergent evolution. That two, you know, two species—they don't look at all like uh, one's way bigger. In fact, one eats the other. Um, they have very hairy feet. Um, and if you've got and the gecko's hairs, for example. Aren't just hairs. They're like Christmas trees with Christmas trees on the tips of the Christmas trees. I mean, they have a series of progressions that get more and more hairy, and uh, it provides this really large surface area that's really close to that surf that um your ceiling. Um, that provides a huge um what's called van der Waals force. This it's a t- you don't even feel it. When you pick up things, there's always a van der Waals force, intermolecular force between two objects. It's what allows pollen to kind of stick to your clothes. Um, but when you have a really large surface area, it's enough to actually um, support the weight of uh, of these insects. And uh, these, sci- these engineers at Stanford have actually built uh, versions of this where they've engineered arrays of hairs and made sure that they can um, hold on to things if you remember there was a big controversy about this the in Colbert report um, a while back people were saying spider-man doesn't exist because they have um, because uh, people had shown that if you try to scale up spider-man's uh, sorry, not spider a spider's legs it wouldn't be able to support the weight of human um, and that's because When you have a large array of these hairs, they don't act as good as just one hair multiplied many times. Um, They start to lose their effect because uh, the weight support is not equally um, applied to all these hairs. There's some parts that get too much weight and those hairs peel off. well, these engineers have found a way to basically create these little kind of yokes, like small These things that are in front of cattle, there's ways to basically equally distribute weight. They applied these things to these hairs and are allowed to basically made these handheld plates that allowed a student to actually climb up a glass building um, like
1: a spider. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go to Dave. Dave in Cheyenne, Wyoming has an, an idea for an experiment, right Dave? Yeah, I do. Um, I have always been um, interested ever since I saw it with the uh, levitating frog in the high-intensity magnetic field. Yes, go ahead. Hmm. I wonder if that could be done with human beings. Levitating a human being in a high-intensity magnetic field. What an interesting idea. What do you think, David? The... um so
3: that's used this idea called paramagnetism where you know uh, organic things like uh, things made out of water can actually uh, become like magnets. Um, the big issue was that that mag- that magnetic field which was um, I think in Europe was only big enough for strawberries and a frog um they still haven't big made one that's strong enough to levitate a person yeah. um but the frog, um, so that guy who won it, Andrew Geim, he's a fellow Ig Nobel prize winner. Um, and uh, he tells me that the frog was fine. So, um, it's possible <laughs> a human could do it too, but uh, they would need a much bigger, much bigger magnet. And that was the most expensive magnet they had, and it was just mm. big enough for a somewhere, frog. Or a really tiny human.
1: Somewhere Galvani is laughing. About that experiment, uh, I want you to re- recount for us because you have a you, you talk you have a great story in your book. You open your book about a story about uh, you as a new father. Let me put it that way: an event that happened to you as a new father and that launched into an investigation of yours. Did I give you enough information? <laughs> yeah, well, um,
3: we can talk a little bit about what it's like to be urinated on, um, and. Uh, so yeah, when you change kid diapers, they um sometimes they play games, and one of their games they play is let's um wait to the diapers are off to urinate and uh, there was a time that happened, and um I was kind of shocked, and uh, one of the things I was shocked by was how long it takes little kids to urinate. I mean I don't if any parent that's waiting for a kid in the bathroom, you think if you're smaller, everything should be faster, but no, um, urination takes. It takes about the same amount of time, and from my measurements, they were about it was about 21 seconds um, for about a 10 pound uh, kid, and uh, those are comparable to my own measurements of my own urination time, um, and it just struck me because if you're 10 times smaller, you should have 10 times less urine. Uh, urine is a byproduct of the blood, urea, and and uh, the bladder should be 10 times smaller if you're if you're smaller. So. I couldn't wrap my head around it, and you know, I got a, a PhD in fluid mechanics. I couldn't understand why it takes the same amount of time if you're smaller. So, so um, I sent some undergraduates. Um, one of them, who's now a professional urologist, which I'm super. He just lifelong learning. He just couldn't stop. Couldn't stop it. Couldn't stop the fun. And uh, they went to the zoo, and I tell them, you know, bring this stopwatch and bring this dirty old bucket and this camera and you know, don't come back until you've taken all the animal urination videos and measured all the urination volumes of every animal in the zoo. And uh, they took me seriously, and they actually did come back in a few weeks. Um, they smelled disgusting and splattered in urine, and they told me the very worst was the rhino. They were kind of traumatized by the rhino. But <laughs> but um, they, I said, just tell me one data point, and then I'll know everything I need to know. And that's the elephant. Just tell me what the, how the elephant goes to the bathroom. And they said the elephant doesn't listen to anything they tell it to do. It just it just uh, wakes up in the morning. But when it does wake up, it takes a long urine. Um, and uh, they put this kitchen garbage can. It's about you know twenty liters, you know very large garbage can can last for a week, and uh, it fills the entire can. Um, and I said, how long does it take? And they said, well that bladder is about a hundred times as big as your wife's dog, and uh, it takes about twenty one seconds. I said, that's, that's, that's the most amazing discovery I've ever made. That's, 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 that's pretty much, this is the pinnacle of my career. And, (laughs) and, uh, it turns out it's because of, they have this long pipe in their body. So, so doctors and veterinarians have long known that in the body, there's this thing called the, the urethra. Uh, my kids call it the pee-pee pipe. And I have to tell my kids, you know, boys have the pee-pee pipe and girls have a pee-pee pipe. Um, it's just, you know, in different places. Um, and, uh. It actually has the same aspect ratio. The length to width is the same for like mice all the way up to elephants. Um, and to put it in perspective, when an elephant urinates, um, it uses a female elephant uses a PP pipe that's about a meter long, and about the width of my fist. So if, if you imagine that PP pipe is like a highway, you've got you know, we wish we had this in Atlanta. We have we'd have like twenty lanes for the urine to come down, and moreover, the length of that pipe. It uses this effect that dates back to the 1850s called Bernoulli's Law, where, where basically if you've got a long pipe underneath a sort of a, a vessel, that pipe can actually amplify the force of gravity and increase the speed of the urine. So much that when an elephant urinates, it's like five shower heads going on at once.
1: Wow. You've given yeah, us more you've given us more to talk about tonight over a beer than any time in recent <laughs> past on science front. Yeah. You would get really clean from five shower heads. <laughs> But but not five urine
3: showerheads. That'd be that'd be less clean. Yeah, we'll quote um. you on that.
1: Uh, while while we're on the topic, while we're talking about wet things and on the topic of water, there's a chapter about another question I never knew I had until I read it in your book, and that is, how do mosquitoes fly through the rain? You know, I mean, if it's raining really hard, a tiny little mosquito why doesn't it get pummeled and knocked away and smashed by all that water? Well, one would think that with the mass of water, it should be devastating for them, but not so. Yeah, it should be devastating. The um,
3: and if you you know take a picture of a mosquito in a rainstorm, you'll see this water drop. They're about you know the same size, but the mosquito doesn't you know it's long, gangly legs. So the water drop actually weighs fifty times as much as a mosquito. It's like you getting hit with a Volkswagen Beetle. It's a it's a huge huge difference in weight, um, but. You know that's the amazing thing about nature. It t- it's taken advantage of this. You know, huge David and Goliath story, and uh, it's uh, taking advantage of the mosquitoes. Really lightweight, and this is how it does it. Like when you go in a rainstorm, you stick out your hand, and water, a raindrop hits your hand and splashes, mm-hmm. and you can feel it. It's a pretty, it's a hard force, um, and the reason the force is so high is because you're ricocheting the raindrop. You're actually throwing it back up in the air. It's splashing because it's hitting your hand, but when raindrops hit mosquitoes they don't splash that's the thing we discovered in the mm-hmm. high speed film they just they keep on going and so if you don't actually this is kind of a zen thing if you don't slow down the drop if you don't resist the drop Um, you don't get that much force. And so uh, because you're not sort of exploding the drop, uh, you don't get that much force. And the mosquitoes, they just go along for the ride, sort of act as like a stowaway on this drop. Um, I mean, they're so hydrophobic, they'll eventually sort of split off. But um, they don't resist
1: um, the force, and and they just uh, survive that way. I'm Ira Plato. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios.
0: WNYC Studios is supported by the Natural Resources Defense Council. You can help NRDC safeguard the earth for future generations. Visit nrdc.org WNYC for more information. Science Friday is supported by ZBiotics. The team of PhD scientists at ZBiotics are tackling rough mornings after drinking with their new pre-alcohol probiotic. This probiotic breaks down the byproduct of alcohol while you drink and sets you up for a great next day. Check out the cutting-edge technology for yourself at zbiotics.com slash Friday and use the code Friday to get 10% off your first order. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. That's zbiotics.com slash Friday and use the code Friday at checkout for 15% off. Carnegie Hall is one of the most famous concert venues in the world.
3: The first time I walked on the stage, I felt like my feet were moving, but they were not touching the floor.
0: Join us for If This Hall Could Talk, a new podcast that explores the history of this iconic landmark through the unique items
3: in its archives. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and together we'll explore how the past shaped the culture we live in today. Listen to If This Hall Could Talk wherever you get podcasts.
1: talking with a David who author of the new book, How to Walk on Water and Climb on Walls. Let's see if we can get a phone call in before we have to go. Let's go to Barb in Seattle. Hi, Barb. Hi.
0: Go ahead. Hi. Okay, so my question, going back to the fly theme that we had earlier, is those annoying little fruit flies, like in your kitchen, the little tiny things, and you have a great big hand, and you go to swat them, and they seem to magically transport to someplace else. Why can we not Hit those little bitty things. How do they maneuver so quickly and so agilely yeah. that we can't get them? Yeah.
1: Good question. Huh? Yeah, David. If you well, uh, Sally. If you
3: if so, that has an evolved response for millions of years. I mean, those flies are tasty little protein, fatty treats. So if an animal could really get them, they would have. And uh, the way they do it is all preparation. So. If you actually, the fly has excellent vision. They can see what's called looming objects. So your hand, as it's coming down from far away, it's increasing in size, um, and the flies can see that. And um, even before you're even close, they see this looming object, and they actually start preparing far, like even like inches, uh, a foot before your hand is even close. And they, what they do is they actually, um, Michael Disson has filmed this at uh, Caltech they they move their middle legs they've got six legs they move it in response so they're actually t- they feel the direction of this looming object and they move their legs in response so they're ready to jump in the opposite direction as soon as possible. And they do all this without the brain, The the, the it's basically all sort of autonomous, mm. it's just an instinct for them. Wow. So just from this luminous response, they know what direction it's coming from. And by the time your hand has even gotten close, they've prepared to take this catapult-like leap and they just basically leap Very in the opposite direction um, before you even touch them.
1: Before we go, I want to touch on a serious turn that your book takes at the end when you talk about how you research has been targeted by politicians for being so-called wasteful science. Tell us about that.
3: That's right. About um, two years ago, uh, uh, my university told me to turn on the TV show Fox and Friends, and uh, there's this huge game show where where they put all the names of these scientific studies. And I found out that I was on this um, list of the most wasteful scientist for the entire country. And not only that, but I was on the list three times, which made me responsible for 15% of the entire country, which I was kind of proud of because I'm just one person. I thought, that's pretty good this year. This I can go for 30% next year. Um, but uh, it, the, basically, they were saying that, and they don't just target me, they've targeted a lot of people who study animal movement. Um, uh, Sheila Paddock's Fight Club for Shrimp, basically people are studying how mm-hmm. shrimp can you know, use their fists to break open mollusks, um, treadmills for shrimp. Um, people that are basically studying animals and how they move, um, we're sort of easy prey for these um, attacks against science.
1: Mm-hmm. You write that the concept of waste is based on the notion of a limited gas tank and a single known destination. People expect scientists to save gas as they go from A to B, but the real power of science is to take us to destinations that we have never been to. It's hard for people who are not involved in science to know about that failure is, is, is an option in science. You know, making mistakes and failing is something you really welcome, and, as opposed to other places in life.
3: Yeah, no, I and mean the study of these animals—these animals, these animals are—I mean, for example, the people have been calling, "How do bugs escape a fly swatter?" I mean, these animals are doing things that our machines are still not capable of doing, and this is important because we're hoping that our robots—I mean, these days robots are trapped in factory floors; they're doing repetitive tasks. We were hoping they can actually face the great outdoors, mm-hmm. places where there's you know leaves and wind and um, and uh, water, and to do that, they're going to have to become a lot more animal-like. They're going to have to learn to deal with different terrain, sand, um, water, uh, rainstorms. Um, we're going to have to and the only way we can understand how to design those kind of things is to look at uh, you know the things around us and how they are doing it.
1: Well, you do um, a very good sort of
3: our first step.
1: Yeah, and you do a very good job of that in your book How to Walk on Water and Climb Up, Climb up Walls Animal Movement and the Robots of the Future. Thank you David. It's a great read. And thanks thanks for joining us. David Who is is a professor of mechanical engineering and biology at Georgia Tech in Atlanta and we have an excerpt up on our website sciencefriday.com/walkonwater.
2: Tomorrow, we revisit a conversation with science legend Dr. Jane Goodall from more than 20 years ago. Join us. I'm Rasha Aridi. WNYC
0: Studios is supported by the Natural Resources Defense Council. Using science, the law, and people power, NRDC is committed to confronting the climate crisis, protecting public health, and safeguarding nature.